welcome to this week's edition of the Niners Nation Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And uh, man, this is the third annual, third annual Black Monday What the F Happened podcast. Uh, it's it's going to be a good one, all things considered, though. We, uh, we have a guest on this week, one Mr. Dan Hatman. He is the director of the Scouting Academy. We've got a really, really fun interview with him talking just about the general manager role what that process entails, and he's got some personal experience with some of the candidates, so one of our favorites, so he's going to talk to us a bit about that. Uh, and, and really, that that and just one of our patented kind of just no agenda blahs about what the hell's going on with the team, really to round it out. So let's, uh, unless you've got anything you want to chime in here with David before we get into the interview with Dan, uh, we'll just jump right in. Yeah, I mean, get your get your drinks ready. Um, that's about all yeah. we got right now because I mean, yeah, we're but, about to get real. That, that's just, I, I don't know. Yeah. This team, man, this team, I, I believe, uh, the exact uh, sentence I told David was, you know, I, the only thing I didn't measure in my old fashion was the bourbon. Uh, <laughs> and I think I may have gone a little heavy handed and <laughs> David's exact response was, I don't know that that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know when you hit falsetto voice that you've uh, you've you've reached goodness. But uh, <laughs> let's hit you with this this interview from Dan Hatman because it was a lot of fun, uh, and then we'll just round it out the rear with uh, uh, what we really want to do is create a culture on this podcast. Um, you know, a culture of winning, culture of 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 uh, fuck it. Um, it did you wait? Wait, did you see the the ESPN splice of like the sixteen culture references like back to back to back? Yeah, uh, they they incredible. took it from KMBR. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, somebody I I forget who it was. Like somebody had uh, tweeted that at us on watch. I was like, oh, man, this is this is hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty good, all things considered. But uh, but yeah, so we'll we'll get to that eventually. Don't worry, plenty plenty <laughs> of navel gazing and and sadness to go around. But before that, let's get to some great quality content with Dan Hatman uh, as uh, as we talk about the general manager roles here in San Francisco. And we'd like to welcome Dan Hatman, the Director of Scouting Development at the Scouting Academy, a former NFL scout and uh, someone who's earned a Super Bowl ring with the New York Giants. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I I think it'd be great to open up and and give some of our listeners a bit of context about why we feel you're a bit more qualified to talk about the general manager position than we are. And So I'd love if you could kind of dive in a little bit about your background, how you got to where you're at, and, and really what uh what research you've done into the general manager position because i think uh it's really really interesting well i think when i got my first shot based a little bit on the luck of being at a place where my alma mater the university at albany is where the giants had training camp you know i i got my foot in the door i started to have success and it it hit me that um that path especially going up is hard to achieve and there's very few people that get a chance to get there. And it, it, it always fascinated me as to how someone would attain that position. And so from the early days of being in and around the NFL, I've always wanted to understand GMs. What do they do? How do they get there? Why are they successful? And so I've been um, really studying that position for a long time. My master's thesis, I, uh, I, I jokingly tell people that I, I wrote the book on GMs. Um, how do, you know, again, how do people get there? What's the job description? How does it all break down? How are most of them structured? Uh, the career paths, educational experiences, playing careers of those that have had the job. And I've carried that research over. I've been studying GM interview processes, 
for the last 10 years? Um, are we using search firms? What are we looking for in candidates? Um, ultimately, how those organizations have tried to pan out. Uh, so this has been a, a long passion of mine in and around the, the scouting community is really just understand who we are and what we're doing. I think that's that's a really good segue to just to talk about the general the general manager position in general. As 49er fans, we've been looking at Trent Baalke now for quite a while. And we we really, I think, don't know exactly what makes a good GM in general from the outside looking in. So from your research, you know, what have you found and from your experience really in the organizations that you've worked with and the people that you talk to on a regular basis, what do you find that a GM really needs to possess to be successful at the NFL level? So we've seen different models of GMs ultimately uh, obtain success. The question that I think most people have is that sustained success. And even still, we end up finding less with consistent overlap, team framework to team framework. Uh, they're all a little bit case study oriented. The biggest thing is the ability to identify value and acquire human capital. And then what I mean by that is everything from your head coach, through your coaching staff, your training staff, your strength staff, your video staff, your equipment staff, your contract and cap negotiation staff, your analytical staff, your scouting staff. These are all human beings, 120 or so per organization, who are putting in 80-hour weeks each week to play one game. You're going to do this 20 to 22 times, or I'm sorry, 22 to 25 times a season, uh, depending on if you go to the playoffs. And so how are you setting that up? And how are you understanding which people are needed in which roles? How are you training them? How are you developing them? How are you dealing with the fact that that's not stable year in and year out, whether it be your choice or their choice or what have you? Um, those people will come in and come out. So constantly moving through human capital, trying to put the right pieces on the bus and move them in the right direction is hard. And then when you factor in all of the decision-making in around that human capital and all of the things that come up on the general manager's desk. And this is things that meetings with ownership uh, and or team presidents on business agendas or budget agendas or anything else that the team needs to understand that's not necessarily straight football ops to your own player valuations and contract extensions to external player valuations or contract extensions to your draft prep, managing your own scouting staff, working with your coaching staff to make sure their needs are met, uh, looking at outside tools, technology, resources to bring in the mix. You can, I mean, it takes a very, very little time to get very broad in terms of scope. I don't personally believe that any one individual is capable of executing all of that at a high level. So you need to delegate. Like if you look at Green Bay, for example, Ted Thompson, you constantly see it reported that he's on the road scouting. So that means that some of the day-to-day -day items that other GMs are handling in office on a daily basis, Ted must be outsourcing to somebody else. Other GMs handle all that stuff and delegate you know, scouting pieces. Um, you know, when you talk about a New Orleans model, uh, my understanding, based on the fact that Mickey Loomis handles both the general manager role for the Pelicans as well as the Saints, in addition to other things for Tom Benson and family and their business enterprises, it doesn't sound like Mickey Loomis is working through 60-plus hours of tape a week. I'm not saying he's not watching tape or not capable of doing that, but I don't necessarily, from my understanding, believe that he's the primary one setting everything up in order to make decisions the coaching staff the scouting staff are all empowered to set those things up and help um, 
you know, the, both of those teams I've mentioned have been in Super Bowls in the last handful of years. So the models are can be very different in terms of how you reach that ultimate goal. Uh, but ultimately, regardless of which model you choose, that person at the top has got to understand how to put these people in the right situations and delegate and move that machine forward. So a lot of this, uh, a lot of people say that the, the one thing the GM has to nail is really just to get a quarterback. So how much of it is luck? How much of it do you think is Bill Belichick for everything that he is a unicorn? And I, I completely agree. He's a, an absolute unicorn when it comes to coaches. But would Bill Belichick be Bill Belichick if he had not stumbled upon Tom Brady in the sixth round? Would Is not every great GM kind of paired with a great quarterback? And so how do you kind of disassociate really GMs that have great quarterbacks versus GMs that ultimately don't? Because when you look at, at Trent Baalke's tenure, he's someone who on this podcast we've really thought he did a lot of good things. And and we talked about, you know, you talked about it too, is, is a, taking that human capital and some of it is giving yourself chances to really nail those picks and a drafting and accumulating draft capital as well. Trent Baalke did a lot of that stuff really well, didn't do some of the, the interpersonal stuff really well, or really make picks or ultimately find a quarterback that could help him succeed at this level. So how much of it is really luck and how much of it is some of these other things that a GM will need to do in order to become successful? So there absolutely is an element to luck and timing in the kind of the irony of the word luck as I immediately draw myself to Andrew Luck. And we think about Ryan Grigson getting his first chance to sit in the big chair in Indianapolis and comes with them owning the number one pick and it's someone like Andrew Luck being available. And so obviously that was something that there was nothing Ryan did to put himself into position besides earning uh, Jim Mercer's trust. But there's nothing Ryan did to, to pick Andrew Luck besides put his name on a card and hand it up there. I mean, I guess he could have taken RG3, but I'm not necessarily convinced there were too many decision makers um, that were going to put one above the other um, from where I was sitting. So, yes, there there is an element to that. But when we look at, uh, you know, across the Bay Area in Oakland, Reggie McKenzie had opportunities to take quarterbacks in the first round. Uh, instead, their staff felt more confident in the second-round pick and uh, Mr. Carr there being someone they felt they could work with and work to put together a coaching staff that could uh, take the skills that they identified as being valuable and work with them. And in addition, haven't stopped drafting quarterbacks to make sure that they're in proper position should something happen to their starter. And, and clearly a playoff team down to their third stringer has needed all of those assets. Um, you know, I think about a Ted Thompson pushing to take Aaron Rodgers at 25 in that fall probably was not something in their pre-draft uh, mock scenarios uh, was anticipated. Probably thought that player was going to be gone by 10. You're sitting there with Brett Favre. But the smart decision makers can find small areas to to create you know, that luck. And the other piece that I think gets a little bit understated, and to your overall point, it's it's hard to do this. And there are things outside of your control that will impact ultimately how this all goes. But it's the small improvements, the systematic small improvements to your process, the little 1% that when you stack them upon each other, the difference between a 7-win team and a 10-win team is astronomically small. A 7-win team and a 10-win team are not 15 players apart in terms of talent level. 
you know, they're not nine coaches apart in terms of uh, acumen in the game. You're, t- you're talking about a fumble, a missed tackle, you know, a dropped pass. Things of that nature can be a, a drastic difference in those. I mean, how many games did Detroit come back in the fourth quarter? I think it's like eight of their nine wins were comebacks. You know, that's a ghost. They could go from a playoff team to picking in the top five if they don't have that kind of mental toughness to push themselves down the stretch. So it's, yes, it's it's incredibly tough. And yes, there's elements of luck. Uh, but I do add the caveat that I think you can put yourself into better positions over and over again uh, with some smart decision making. So when it comes to, you know, again, sticking with evaluating these guys, and, and I really wanted to get your opinion on how well you think we can do that from the outside. I mean, you know, we like, especially on this podcast, we, we, we try to do our homework, right? We watch film, we, we read up on, on scheme and try to make sure that we're, you know, using all of the available resources that we have at our disposal. And um, I think it's a little bit easier to get a, you know, it's, it's not going to be perfect ever, but get a better idea of, of say like what a player is doing, going that route from the outside um, than it is going to be somebody like a general manager. But how well can really we really assess the job that they're doing, um, you know, from like a, a more of a media perspective, an outsider fan perspective? So I now consider myself, you know, the outsider, the fan, the analyst, um, you know, I, and I try to use all the same tools, you know, that you're talking about that are you know available to me to watch film and assess all these things. And what's what's fascinated me about now working in a more public space and being active in social media is there are incredibly bright people who have never gotten a chance to work for teams, but that in no way diminishes what they bring to the table from analyzing this game. That said, there are aspects to the process in the NFL, information involved in decision-making in the NFL that will never ever see the light of day that drastically impacts the narrative around every one of these candidates whether they're good or bad or what have you Um, and I'm not saying that the processes are all perfect internally or that they're so much better Um, you know some of the things I've seen I would argue would be you know if if the the light of day shined on them people would be scratching their head confused going what the hell why did you even get to that point Nonetheless, there are absolutely elements to evaluating these things that we'll never, you know, we'll never get to really understand why. But the other, the other major three sports are drastically better at rehiring executives. And we put a lot of emphasis into rehiring coaches. We constantly see coaches uh, go from getting fired to all of a sudden being the hottest name in the market and everybody wants a crack at them. And it comes with an understanding that they learned from their experiences. Their failures went and got better. But yet we never give general managers that same opportunity. So many of these guys go back in as national scouts or personnel directors for other teams and never see the light of day as candidates. Again, it's very tough to kind of um, repurpose yourself. That's why we're seeing so many candidates recently. Turn, you just turned out interviews because – you know, if they got a good situation, you only got one shot at this. I mean, if all the stars aren't aligned, if you don't feel they're all aligned to help you and your family keep that job for a long time, why move? Because you don't get shot number two. 
we really end up leaning on what their bosses say about them. So if their bosses didn't say anything about them, we don't really know anything about them, and we get stuck kind of guessing until you get to a position where uh, you know an ownership group or somebody can bring them in for an interview. Speaking about the process in general and, and talking about the way that, that Jed York specifically for the 49ers is going about his process, he had in, in his end of year kind of now it's his third annual Black Monday press conference where he's made a major move. First, it was Harbaugh, then Tom Sula, and now Balky and Chip Kelly. And one of the themes from his uh, from his interview or from his press conference really was that he didn't know whether or not he was going to hire the GM first or whether he was going to hire the head coach first or whether the GM was going to report to the head coach or the head coach was going to report to the GM, just that they all needed to work together. Um, the only thing that he was sure about was that he was not going to hire uh, kind of this master overseer of football operations and allowing them to hire a GM. What do you think are, are the, the real life kind of pros and cons of, of that approach? Is there really a drawback to pursuing it that way? Or is Jed more on the right side where he's like, look, as long as we hire the right people and get them in the building and they work together, we'll be okay. I think that when you look north in his division to Seattle and the model that they used was the failed NFL coach, successful college coach, brought him in first and then went on our search for a personnel director. Now they might have been, or not said might, they were doing research concurrently and had candidates lined up and what have you. Um, but that model was successful within the division. I think those things certainly help in terms of um, leveraging that as a working model for yourself. I mean, my my uh, favorite quote is that justification is the most powerful human ability. And that doesn't mean we're always wrong. It just means this is what we do. We, we take the information available to us and we make a decision and then we've got to justify it and, and move forward with it. And so Jed's looked at the variety of models out there and the, the easiest thing at his disposal is the NFL advisory panel. This is what they're there for. They're there for leveraging decades of experience to keeping a thumb on the heartbeat of the league and understanding who top head coach and GM candidates might be and presenting those candidates to ownership such that if they want to make a move, you know, they've got resources available. Um, now, this is a collection of, of former kind of coaches and, and personnel men who really just lit, serve as advisors. I think John Madden's on, on that committee, And Ron correct? Wolf, Charlie Casserly, Tony Dungy have all been, uh, Bill Polian have all been on the panel over the past few years. But most ownership groups have leveraged somebody off that panel in the past you know, two, or I'd say three years of searches. Someone from that panel has been involved in these things. You know, the Ernie Accorsi's, Carl Peterson's, Charlie Casserly's, um, Ron Wolf again, have all been leveraged uh, to do this. And I, I believe Jed was asked if he if he had somebody for that role. And I, I think he said he, he didn't want to, you know, basically just throw their name out there to throw their name out there. Um, but then he might have had somebody helping in that vein and that you know again wouldn't surprise me that maybe it might be somebody from that panel because essentially that's what the leagues put them there to do that makes a ton of sense it really does and i think the tim calicami was speculating that that's probably bill parcells or someone like that 
Um, and so, cause I think Bill Parcells used to be tight with bulky and there's a whole circle of people. I think that, that he, that Jed believes he has at his disposal. So, um, it wouldn't also surprise me if that, if he was referring to the advisory panel, cause that's, that sounds like something that Jed would do. <laughs> uh, which your, I guess your original question, my apologies was the, the model and are there pros and cons? Um, I think at the end of the day, when you set it up, this each and every silo flows to the owner piece to me is the biggest issue because you systematically with this flat structure in this environment where there's not a whole lot of security you got to build that trust if you're going to take two people that have never worked together before and put them together and give them a short timeline of let's say three years to put product in the field that we can all be proud of then when things start going wrong in the middle of year two and people are starting to worry about whether or not they have to move their families again, you start trying to put yourself in the best position. And if you've built this model where the accountability all flows to the owner, well, the easiest thing to do is tear down another vertical. And we've seen that happen in different places over the years. To me, it's more effective when there's a a clear chain of command so that accountability flows straight through. Um, And I think you can tie the uh, the head coach and the GM together, which I do think is important, and still have a more vertical chain of command. Because those people, I mean, those two have to have fit and and work together. But I don't necessarily get excited about a model that immediately allows people to kind of pit themselves against each other when things go wrong. Now, on the on the continued kind of question of the process, I think one of the things that I have always wanted to know is really the process behind what building a board looks like. Um, I think a couple of years ago, you went on a podcast uh, with Josh Norris called Process the Process, and you talked about the the three different kind of grading systems. And, and then there's a national scouting group and Blesto Scouting, which I did not even know existed. But apparently, you know, two thirds of the league effectively uses these scouting groups to help kind of winnow down this large pool of college players that then they go and either regrade and put through their own process. So being I'd love to just get your perspective on on the different boards that you've put together to build to help build as well as what you know that is is used out in in the NFL world right now what's that process of building a board like what what is a draft grade is it a number grade is it a color are there different kind of variations within that and and how does that all come together on draft day uh, the the board is a is an interesting take on data visualization all right there's a there's our buzzword for the day. <laughs> so when you're putting this together and, you know, I, I've not been a college director, so this was not my primary uh, area of expertise, but certainly seen it done by my uh, uh, co-workers in, in three different organizations, you're going to end up with a wall in your draft room that across the top stretching from left to right is going to have columns for positions quarterback running back wide receiver what have you some teams are very specific in terms of those roles breaking down wide receiver into maybe outside lane versus slot maybe having a column for a third down back or a a pass rush specialist who may not be a primary run defender or what have you some are more kind of open in general you know linebacker safety what have you But long story short, you're going to have whatever positions you value across the top. 
And then down the left-hand side, you're going to have the rounds. And there's going to be eight categories there because your last one's going to be your undrafted free agents that you've prioritized. <laughs> and depending on the team, you're going to have somewhere between 150 and 250 um, little magnets on that board. And they're about the size of a business card, most places I've been. And some teams have gone as far as to digitize that board, but not all. And you've started that process arguably with 8,000 prospects. That's where Blesto and National are incredibly helpful. And, I mean, you only have usually six or seven area scouts, maybe two national scouts and a director. So you, you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 individuals kind of really heavily working your college process during the, the, doing the real heavy lifting. Um, that's, that's not a lot of time to work through all of them. You, you almost can't. So you've got you to work on whittling it down to a more manageable number and more manageable group, getting those guys out in the road starting in August, um, and then again boiling it down to players that you deem draftable. One of the interesting notes I'll throw in there is I've never seen a draft board with 32 first-round grades. I've seen one with as few as 17. Um, and then these little magnets, these little business cards, are not just the player's name. It's the player's name. It's the player's school. It's his height, weight, speed, combine metrics. You might have... Um, so you start, to answer your other question, the, the grading skills are all going to end up with a number. The number corresponds to uh, a sentence on your grading scale relative to who's important to you or what role they're going to have. So your your top grades are going to be for, this is a, an immediate impact starter with Pro Bowl potential. might be a language around a first-round grade. And then you're going to have an additional part of your scale, which are letters that correspond to things like um, lack size or lack speed or medical concerns or great character or what have you. And then in addition, depending on the organization, there might be additional color coding to help break something down. This is why I say it's an interesting problem in data visualization. How much stuff can you pack onto a business card such that when you put 25 <laughs> people in a room and stare at this board for a number of days trying to make decisions, you feel like you have enough at your fingertips? And they, uh, I've never seen two teams have them look exactly alike. In fact, the grading scales are not exactly alike. Even teams that work for the same group, such as National or Blesto, the grading scales aren't exactly alike, nor are the boards exactly alike, nor should they be. Because at the end of the day, there's very few players at the top of a draft that are game changers for everybody in the league. Very quickly at every single position, players move into schematic fits where the things that they do well are going to be better for certain teams than others. And so someone that might be a third-round prospect on one board is going to be a sixth-round prospect on another board or what have you. So they're, they're interesting. <laughs> they're very interesting. So you said something earlier in that that I thought was was really interesting, and, and that was the number of scouts that that a team has, right? And it wasn't very many of them. I mean, it's maybe, maybe 10 guys that are kind of doing this. And, um, you know, one of the things... Right. Right. Um, and so I think one of the things that we've kind of, you know, learned over the last decade or so when you, when you see the kind of rise of analytics and um, one of the things that really comes up all the time is sample size. Right. We need to have a large enough sample to really be able to evaluate some of these guys. And 
Um, it, it's like you mentioned, it seems really difficult to do that with, you know, maybe 10 guys looking at all of these college prospects. Um, do you think that's kind of an area of opportunity for some teams like that? If you had a team that was more willing to, to spend a little bit more money in this area and, uh, you know, have a much larger team of scouts. So rather than say, uh, you know, you always hear like the number of games they watch, you want to watch like three games, maybe four games on a prospect. And we know that that's, you know, probably not enough in, in a lot of cases to really know everything that this player can do and know what you're you're getting. Um, do you think that like if, if a team were to say we're going to you know dump some more resources and money into this area and rather than have 10 you know guys running our college scouting, we're going to have 50. Do you think that that would actually um, give a team a, a, a sizable advantage or is it not really you don't think it'd be worth the resource, I guess? Well, there's a, probably a balance between the, the 10 and the 50 um, part of the spectrum. So, yes, I think that an increased investment in human capital, uh, you know, elbow grease, manpower, whatever vernacular you want to use there in scouting in general would be excellent. Um, so much of the job, especially of the college area scout, the six or seven individuals split up living in different parts of the country, almost independent contractor style away from the building. The vast majority of the year submitting reports back that ultimately be used. Um, while a lot of their assessment may come on the final grades that they give these players so much of the information from them that's actually used is the character in the background assessments, the stuff that they're culling from the colleges because their boots on the ground they're private investigators. I mean, that's uh, the vast majority of general managers are leveraging their college scouts as private investigators. And I, I mean, all I think all the college scouts really want to hope that their football evaluations are moving the needle. My experience around certain decision makers has led me to believe that once the area scout puts in his grade, you know, says that he's a first-day player, a second-day player, a third-day player. They put in kind of early, um, loose evals early on just so that the GM and the personnel directors back home can prioritize film. You know, so if my area scout's out and he's been out for four or six weeks and he gives me five players that have really caught his eye, those might be the first – well, not might. Those would be the first five players I watch. You know, I'm not going to watch the, uh, you know, the backup fullback at Nebraska if there's somebody else that's going to be more impactful. So the, you know, those assessments help prioritize that. But once the top guys in the organization, and, and then especially when you get to the spring and the coaches get involved, there's a lot of opinions on every player. I mean, by the end of the process, you have somewhere in the neighborhood, you talk about your, you know, your college scouts, cross-check, national guys, college directors. You bring your pro scout in for cross-checks. Your position coaches, your coordinators, your head coach are going to watch players. Um, depending on who else you have on staff, you might have your analytical guys crunching numbers on them, um, what have you. You're, you're getting sizable looks. I mean, from the lowest guys on your board are probably still getting five looks. The highest guys on your board might be getting 10, 15 looks. You know, in multiple games and, and a lot of different evals coming in. So I'm not always convinced that it's a lack of eyeballs and manpower on each prospect, particularly the top of the board. I think one of the areas where it could be helpful is if you're going to send these guys out in the field to collect this information on them, but then they also have to watch all this film and turn in these reports that, that ultimately they get evaluated on, but 
that's not necessarily all of what they get evaluated on or what's really important to their job. You just I feel like we set up the college guys to fail a little bit more than we should. I think additional human capital to help call lists, you know, watch players, prioritize who's going on the road, when they're going on the road, what they're going on the road to find um, would make everybody's life a little easier. You know, you got you go into a place like Ohio State, they're going to give you a list with 20 guys on it that might be draft prospects. And you've got maybe two days in your schedule in September there and maybe an extra day in November on your schedule there. So I'm going to spend three days on my 20 guys there, but I go down the road in Ohio the next day and i got to do a school call at Akron and they've got two guys on their list. So I'm spending a day at Akron on two, two guys and two days at Ohio State on 20 guys. Just, there's things yeah. about the process that have never quite matched up to me, and, and, and I think there's ways that we can increase people to make those guys more effective at what they do and what they bring back have more power. Let's switch gears then and, and kind of talk about that opening now and, and some of the candidates that have been mentioned uh, to potentially fill that role. They've already got a, a fairly long list of uh, candidates they've at least requested interviews for. Um, I'll run through that list very quickly. I'm going to leave one name off because I kind of want to talk about him uh, a, a little bit separately. But the, the names that we have so far, uh, Nick Casario from the Patriots, Elliot Wolf, Packers. Um, this one, I'm going to I'm going to murder this name. Brian uh, Gutnust from the Packers as well. <laughs> um, Jimmy Ray and then uh, George Payton from the Vikings. So uh, are there any of these guys that, you know, that you're familiar with and, uh, you know, that you have experience either working with or kind of have heard things about um, any anyone among that pool that kind of sticks out to you? Well, a couple of things intrigue me. So the narrative around the San Francisco job right now from a media perspective is that it's the it's the worst in open from a coaching standpoint i would assume that those arguing it's a bad coaching job would also argue it's a bad personnel job now nick casario has not agreed to interview as of yet it's been requested but when we look at guys like george payton and elliot wolf george payton has declined interviews in 2014 2015 and 2016 he's not interviewed since 2013 in carolina so last three years, he's looked at what's on the table and said, I'm better off staying here. Something this year has got him saying San Francisco's worthy to go talk to. Elliot Wolf has never interviewed for a GM job until agreeing to interview for this one. Guda Kunst is, is a rising guy, very much talked about very highly in a lot of scouting circles. Um, has a big college background, which as we talked about before, is a, owners are very excited about guys with boots on the ground, college backgrounds. So not surprised to see him um, get an interview. Uh, but again, the, the thing that's catching my eye is when the guys like Wolf and Peyton, when I, when I did my research, these are guys that have been turning down job, turned down interviews. So the, the six that have consistently turned down interviews were Casario, DaCosta, McClay, Peyton, Tobin, and Wolf. Um, and so two of those six... 33% of that group this year has said, huh, San Francisco intrigues me. So I, I, I'm arguing that clearly it's not as bad as everybody setting it out to be. And the other part is there's still only 32 of these jobs. So, uh, you know, at some point you got to jump on and grab one, and usually it's not the Super Bowl champion calling you if you want to take over. Um, I have not personally worked 
with any of those individuals to date. Um, I've spoken with some of them informally and in different settings. I've gotten you know, great impressions off them. I've gotten great reviews from other people off of many of them. Uh, Jimmy Ray is another one that's been on the circuit. He's had four career GM interviews. Uh, was a big rising star in um, San Diego. They made some changes. He ended up catching on with Grigson in Indianapolis. This is one of those situations that happens all across the scouting profession. So in an, indiv- an organization that's rising, so Green Bay has two candidates interviewing for San Francisco's job. Seattle has two candidates interviewing for San Francisco's open job. And both of those organizations, Green Bay and Seattle, are held in high regard by pretty much everybody. Fans, coaches, analysts, scouts, what have you. They're, they've won. So anybody from those organizations comes with the label of winner. Jimmy Ray, because Indianapolis is kind of struggling and they're not sure if they're going to keep their coach in GM, I haven't heard a formal announcement from their owner that that's happening. Jimmy Ray does not currently come with that label. That does not mean in any way, shape, or form he's not capable of doing the job. I've seen personally... You know, guys in the number two, three, four, five chair, whatever, still executive level people in organizations who have advocated against the direction that a team has taken in whatever manner, been shot down. The number one guy said, Nope, this is my decision. This is what we're going with. They fall in line, back it up. Because once a decision's made, it's an organization's decision. Your job is to back it up and move forward, not to complain about it and nitpick at it. Um, and then that decision doesn't pan out, and all, everybody else underneath it gets painted with the bad brush and like I said having seen that firsthand it frustrates me because that does not mean that that person agreed with that decision promoted that decision wanted to make that decision um depends on how that team does those things some of those decisions are only done by three guys in in a room and sometimes it's the owner the GM and the head coach and that's it everybody else finds out about it on ESPN and sometimes there's a lot of people in the room talking about things and putting an input and arguing and disagreeing and trying to come to a conclusion. So, you know, uh, again, of the, the six that or I think we're up to seven candidates now that seem to be known, like I said, was it two green Bay, two from Seattle, Peyton, uh, Jimmy Ray, and we, and Riddick have all been um, said to have interviews. You know, four of those guys are coming from winning organizations. Uh, you know, Peyton and Minnesota have built, what was supposed to be a Super Bowl contender traded for Bradford again, expecting us to compete for a Super Bowl. That did not pan out this year, um, but he's still held in, in, in high regard. And again, I, I'm fighting for Jimmy Ray. Never having met the man or spoken to him in my life, I'm fighting against the label of because he's an indie doesn't necessarily mean he's good or bad. You know, that's one of those things where you got to sit down and talk to him. So the, the, the one name that we mentioned, and you kind of mentioned it there right at the end there, is, is Lewis Riddick. And he's somebody that Oscar and I have been kind of intrigued with here recently. Um, you know, we know that you have uh, a relationship with him through the Scouting Academy. Um, so I guess tell us a little bit about him. I, I know a lot of our listeners aren't really very familiar with his background. And, uh, you know, we got some questions like, why is he qualified? Why is this ESPN analyst qualified to be a general manager? Um, you know, so I, I guess give us a little bit about your experience working with him and, and kind of uh, what sort of general manager you think you'd be. Uh, so Riddick has the background of someone who grew up in around the game. Um, you know, this is someone who has relatives of like former NFL coordinator and, and DB coach, Tim Lewis is a, is a cousin. Uh, his brother played in the league. Riddick ultimately played in the league. 
Um, he's got an interesting narrative. He came in actually as a San Francisco draft pick, ended up spending time with Oakland, Atlanta, and, and ended up in Cleveland. And, you know, to hear him tell the story of ending up in Cleveland, having bounced around, um, not feeling like he had maximized his playing potential, and then towards the end of his playing days, he ends up in Cleveland with Nick Saban as his position coach and Bill Belichick as his head coach. And, you know, the light bulb went off and he, he, you know, got his Ph.D. in football. And those guys just absolutely instilled so many things in him. And um, he has amazing relationships with coaches, really works to understand their craft, what they're trying to do to set them up for success, Uh, you know, really spends time learning from them. He's one of those guys that blew me away with how much he would spend time with the coaches understanding how they wanted to implement things and therefore what they needed in order to execute that. And I can't say that every scout or executive I've ever been around is the same way. Um, a lot of them come from the, the school of, well, just find good players and then the coaches should be able to figure it out. Uh, unfortunately, I think this leads to a systemic problem of our, our business, our scouting community. When we talk, Bill Polian talks about a successful hit rate is 50%. Well, I respect Bill Polian to a great deal. At the same time, you know, Bill Walsh and any of his work always said that once you project what a player should be, your organization hit at 80% if you want to have sustainable success. So if you're saying this guy's going to be a good special teamer, he better be a good special teamer. If you're saying he's going to be a good sixth offensive lineman with interior swing potential, he better hit on that. You better do that as an organization at 80% level or you can't sustain success. So, you know, understanding what these guys want and how they want to do it. He's one of those guys that really kind of took to that and 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 build build a lot around that. And that was something that when I got to Philly really struck me as um, being impressive and something I thought would be really important to pass on and has been a big part of my career. So it, he's worked in Washington. He's seen the things, um, you know, that Dan Snyder tried to put together prior to Scott McLuhan that didn't work, uh, spent time in Philadelphia in good years and in bad, has seen what works and what doesn't. Um, yeah, I, I understand it, this This dark horse is coming out of ESPN, and he's not the number two at last year's Super Bowl winner. Um, but you can hear the guy talk about the game every single day on ESPN. All you got to do is turn it on and listen. And if you don't come away learning something about the game, I still tune in every day and usually come away learning something about the game. Um, you're just not paying attention. I mean, all his thoughts are out there and, uh, he shoots you straight and it, it, there's no, he's not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. This guy knows this game. Anybody that's been five minutes with him knows that he understands the game. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's something else. I'm, I'm impressed with him. Well, you know, I think that my, we, we were turned on to Lewis Riddick actually a while ago because Tim Kawakami back in September identified him as a potential candidate uh, when he was thinking that the 49ers were going to blow things up at the end of the year. And Kawakami, as is usual when it comes to the Niners, was absolutely right. They blew everything up. And, and now here comes Riddick as the name. And the more and more I read about him, the more and more I did look back at some of his clips, you know, I, I think that for whatever reason, the 49ers right now need a lot of mending. They need a lot of mending with the media. They need a lot of mending within the four walls, within 4949 Centennial. And they need someone who can charismatically present a vision that's not just fluff, but that actually is backed with some substance. 
Um, and that's and honestly, again, we, we just talked about how it's difficult to see from the outside looking in some of the qualities that make a GM successful, not successful. But from from what little I've seen from Lewis, that's that's the impression that I get. Right. The, the impression that I get is someone who's going to be able to to translate Jed York into someone to someone who's kind of almost likable and and who's going to have really strong football ideas and, and who's at least in the takes that I've seen him uh, have you know, is not crazy. Even the ones that people are pinning on him, like, you know, the miles Jack is better than, um, than some DBs in the slot. It's, it, you know, when you look at some of the tape, it's, it's not too far off. Actually, miles Jack is ridiculous. Um, you know, so <laughs> no, that, that one, in my opinion is not far off. I, I would have said that one independently of him on that. Yeah. I mean, and I remember David was doing some miles Jack cause miles Jack was David draft crush last year. And he sent me this clip of miles Jack in the slot, just carrying this wide receiver up the seam. And I'm just, and he's literally running step for step with this wide receiver. And it's not a slow wide receiver. It's not like, you know, third string tight end or something. It's, it's a legit wide receiver. So he was, was doing things like in coverage that linebackers shouldn't be doing. Well, we're we're talking about a day and age in the game where everybody's in eleven and twelve personnel, oh, yeah. but they're not tight formations. They're they're spreading the width of the field, and you know defenses have to make philosophical decisions of are we just going to play nickel all the time and then six man box it unless we can potentially rotate a safety down and sacrifice our interior run defense for pass rushers. There's a lot of sacrifices need to be made to meet that offensive coordinators know what they're doing. They're getting paid to exploit these things. When you get a guy like miles Jack who can stand stacked over your defensive end and play, you know, anywhere from B to D gap and then detach over a wide receiver or a tight end and not just carry him in man, but this guy can play zone coverage as well. This is a flexible piece that allows you to basically play base against anything from 21 to 11 personnel, which is a wide variance and, and be successful. So yeah, I thought it was a no brainer to consider him for a role like that. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he, he's he's definitely somebody that I am am rooting for and hoping that I didn't get a chance to watch him a ton this year uh, in Jacksonville. I know he didn't play a bunch, but uh, certainly rooting for him to you know come back from that injury and, and be an impact player. All right, can I can I kind of change the uh, the thing just for a second? I got can I ask one question to you guys? Of course. Yeah. So, and this is like I said, I, I I come from a place of ignorance on this. Why do you necessarily want your next GM to be a charismatic? Um, communicator of a football vision. And I, I, I laugh at this because I just got in a discourse with someone the other day about the effectiveness as Bill Belichick as a teacher. And we, a lot of it stemmed from you know what we can see of him, which is press conference. And, and clearly we're not talking about a charismatic communicator of a football vision in, in that setting. And so I guess I, I kind of pivoted back to you guys is that is that something that you want more from a a fan standpoint like you want to feel like you can engage with this person on a human level or do you think that this might actually mean that i think there's a grocery analogy that a lot of personnel people use where you know you got to have the right ingredients to make the meal that you want to make right so i i think if if you if you have someone who can communicate that vision well and, and that doesn't necessarily mean you know, in that super charismatic way, because I think Bill Belichick is probably really, really good at communicating exactly what his vision is. He just does it in his way and he probably has a hoodie involved with sleeves cut off. Right? <laughs> um, but I think that's I think it, it's communication and the ability to communicate um, that that appeals to me, because I think that if you can do that at, at the level at which you can do so on television and not saying that one's necessarily going to give you the other. But if you can do that and you've generated, you know, a community of people who generally think you could do a good job and would support you, I think that would continue with you in your next job. 
I think that's an excellent point. Um, the piece that, from where I sit, is kind of intriguing is I come from a philosophy on leadership. And this person is the leader of your football operation. And they're going to impact and touch a lot of different pieces of that. And again, going back to the selection of people to fill a variety of roles. So at some point, you're going to select these people. You're going to put them in roles. When we, the best leaders that I've ever been around made me feel like they were putting me in a position to succeed. And when you talk to pretty much any player I've ever spoken with and you ask them about their favorite coaches and what made them great, that comes up. It's this person has the vision to understand who I am, what I can do, how I fit into the bigger picture, has explained that to me, taught me how to do that, and therefore I will be successful and we will be successful. And that's hard to do. Like when you when you look and, and read from Bill Walsh, you know, when we all have hopefully on our shelves somewhere, you know, the Bible of, you know, finding the winning edge. And when you talk about a Belichick or and you read Carol's work, they have this vision of where everybody fits in and what their job is and how they should do their job. But it's not just the matter of fact of this is their job and, and they should be doing it, but it's that added layer of, okay, this is their job. This is what they need in order to do that. I've identified the person that can do that. I've selected you. I've put you in the job. Okay, great. Now I'm going to give you all the tools to be successful. I'm going to tell you what I expect from you. I'm going to hold you accountable to that level of expectation. I'm going to push you to deliver more than that so that everybody provides surplus value because when we get to that point, then we can be successful. And those guys with that type of vision, this is not just can I go to Ohio State, watch their 20 guys, and come back and say this one's the best. Right? If that was the only qualification to be a general manager, there is a broader pool of individuals across the National Football League that can do that. The evaluation piece of players, to me, is not necessarily the hardest part. I think the valuation, what do I give up to get this player, whether that be cash or draft capital or trade or what have you, the valuation, ultimately the selection, and then the implementation and development of those guys is really hard. And so to your point about communication, I've had leaders that were just duds, you know, just a dullard, but when they sat you down and looked you in the eye and said, okay, this is what you're going to do, this is how you're going to do it, I'm going to make sure you do it well. Like you bought into that. They were credible. They were competent. They, you, they, they could do it. Uh, and then I've had the charismatic rah-rah guy, and you, you, know, you feel like you want to go run through a wall. But I, I neither say part of the, the charismatic word, I guess, is what caught me, because I've seen those with and without that that were successful when they knew exactly how the pieces were going to put together in the puzzle to the point that they could develop you and, and provide you with the tools to be successful. Because then you came into work every day empowered that these people have selected me, they've put me here, and they are going to optimize me. I'm going to look good, right? Don't we all have to look good <laughs> whatever we do? Um, and that's the thing that gets me excited. So if I was sitting with Jed in the room and, and going through these candidates, that's what I want to extract from them in this interview process. Not not do you have head coaching lists. They, I guarantee you all seven of those people have lists of head coaches. All seven of those people have lists of scouts. 
All seven of those people have lists of grading scales and how they would break up people across parts of the country and how their college meetings would be organized. All the calendar shit, every one of them has got a book on that. But who has the plan on how everybody from my pro personnel director to my assistant DB coach to the guy in the training room that's putting together the cleats, how not just who they are, but how we are going to maximize and optimize them and hold them to a certain standard of accountability. That's what I felt like I got from Walsh in reading his material. And, you know, and that's what I feel like I hear from the people that have come through the New England program. And I think if you can build something to that level, and again, you're looking for unicorns, but again, there's only 32 jobs and there's a big pool of people out there. So you got to hope that there's maybe one or two more of them out there. Um, that's certainly what I would be pushing for. Yeah, you want that unicorn, right? You you want thirty two unicorns? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you want you want you want your division rivals to have those. You don't want to see. Well, I mean, from speaking of a place of personal experience, having worked for three, and, and by no means is that the preponderance of the league, but it, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. You know, in terms of operations, execution. Um, good personnel, bad personnel, good coaching, bad coaching, good process, bad process. You know, you the more exposure you have to the way different people execute and operate across the league, the more perspective you have on that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can apply it, right? There's there's also that ability to learn from and then apply, you know, pick out the best pieces. But that exposure certainly helps. And so when you go to Riddick, you've got four NFL teams from a playing standpoint, and two more as a as a senior executive. Um, you know, I would hope he, I hope he's been able to pick out the best from all those people and and, and find ways to minimize, um, or I'm sorry, not minimize, but eliminate you know those possibilities for issues from you know the book that he's put together um, to prepare for an interview. Awesome. Well, you know, I'd, I want to be respectful of your time, too, and I know that we, we kind of got off on a, on a tangent there at the end, but I thought it was a really, really valuable discussion. Uh, definitely enjoyed having you on, and, and again, I'm still, we're still going to be, I think, pulling for, for Lewis Riddick here as time goes on. But, uh, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch and send some questions on Twitter your way. Uh, and if anyone listening has some more questions or follow-ups or Dan, you can definitely follow him on Twitter, at Dan underscore Hatman. That's H-A-T is in Tango, M-A-N. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. It was really a, a blast talking about all things front office. Uh, and maybe we'll do it again after we hire a, a general manager. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Well, what, uh, it was a lot of fun doing that interview. What, what David, do you think was your biggest takeaway? What, what did you hear in that interview where you're like, huh, I, I did not know that. I mean, there were, so there were a lot of interesting things, obviously. Um, I, I thought one that kind of jumped out that was, um, you know, maybe not the biggest takeaway necessarily, but just something that was really kind of surprising to me um, uh, about the way that kind of organizations are structured or the, the thing about the number of scouts, right? Like we mentioned, you really have, you know, when it comes to college scouting, you have like maybe six, seven guys that are out there that are your area scouts. And then you have, you know, a couple more that are in the building and, and you throw in the director of college scouting, and you're, you're looking at like maybe a 10 man group. Um, I kind of was under the impression that, you know, obviously you hear about the area scouts and that part in of itself wasn't uh it w wasn't something that was new to me necessarily but it was the idea that oh it's just the one area like you it's, are the one it's just matt malaspino that, that's it yeah he's the guy higher area like i figured like you maybe get five six per area or something like that right and it was a much um bigger group there so that was kind of a little bit surprising it was something that uh yeah you, you know you 
you feel like with all of the money and that's that's an area where you you don't have a salary cap on that right like you there's no limit to the amount of money that you can spend when it comes to those sort of things like why hasn't a team decided that okay rather than get a bunch of dudes that are like you know 21 years uh old or younger and pay them almost nothing uh to to go out and do this stuff like why don't we spend a little bit more money here in this area and you know beef up our scouting department and um, you know, lighten the load a little bit and maybe get more quality and, um, you know, reports back from these guys and, um, you know, get more looks at more prospects. And, uh, yeah, that was something that was, was really interesting to me. Yeah. I think for me, it was when we were talking about the, the different off the different front office structures, I, you know, I said on Twitter during Jed's presser that I thought that it was a mistake to not go in with the vision or a plan to be like, I don't know who I'm going to hire first. Could be the coach, could be the GM. I don't know. Uh, it, he basically gave the internet shrug for that question. And I, uh, at first Dan was talking about how, look, yeah, I mean, it can work multiple different ways. And, and I thought he was going to go down this line of like, so yeah, I mean, it can kind of do whatever, but, but he kind of had this turn at the end there where he was like, but if it's a super flat structure where it's the owner and everyone else, then, then that actually is problematic. The, and, the whole, and that, everything I, that he was describing there was the 49ers, like in what we've yeah. been for the last, like, what, four years now. Like, exactly. Yeah. I just kept thinking, like, everything he said, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yep, no, exactly. And, and he's talking, and it's it's just so interesting because I remember leaving that that press conference with Jed, and I thought to myself, you know, the, the only part where he seemed like a human, the only part where Jed was like, yeah, okay, you, you actually think about this stuff in a, in a space that's bigger than your arrogant head, is when he was talking about the families of the assistant coaches, when he was like, look, these are the people that oftentimes get forgotten on days like this, and, and we got to do whatever we can to make sure that they're okay with their families. I thought that actually was one of his best and most touching moments, if you can have one in that in that. But then hearing Dan talk about it when, when he was like, you know, that that's, you know, when someone starts worrying about their family, when someone starts thinking about that, then, of course, they're going to start trying to turf guard and make inroads and and try and protect themselves. I was like, well, yeah, that's exactly it. So it's even when Jed tries to be protective and do something good, he does it in such, you know, a, a, the wrong way that it ends up causing more harm than good. And I think that's, you know, if we were to put a fine point on, on what I think is wrong with with Jed and, and the franchise, it's not that he intends to drive this team into the ground. I do genuinely, genuinely believe he cares. I just don't think he knows how to fix it, but he doesn't know that he doesn't know how to fix it. Yeah. You know, like um, he, he just thinks he can will it to happen because his uncle is Eddie DeBartolo. And once the 49ers hired Bill Walsh, you know, like the, like those are the things. Apparently he keeps from his quotes, to. you know, he hired Bill Walsh. Did you, did you yeah, see that? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, really taken, taken some uh, some words there out of context, but it's still funny for, because it's For those here. that didn't read the article, there was he did, a, he did an interview specifically where he was asked whether or not, you know, he could succeed giving, you know, kind of turning coaches over as quickly as he has. And he said that, that you know, the 49ers have turned over coaches this quickly before, and that is true, right before we hired Bill Walsh, uh, you know, the the... The, the franchise did fire coaches in back-to-back years and then they hired bill walsh and, and, and off, off but he said go. he said we yeah yeah we he said hired we've, we've bill hired walsh. <laughs> and it's like i mean it was very much in the same sense that like fans use we when referencing a team um obviously he was like maybe not even born or like you know a baby when that happened so i think uh, he was, was maybe like two or thing. three yeah but all right, so so let's kind of go down really some of the, the more interesting points about what the hell's happened so far because I think that we have to start with one. We've got to pour some out for Chip Kelly. 
Like, well, let's yeah. let's go ahead and just take. We do this every. I think we've done now to this season where we do a moment a moment of drinking silence. Uh, so let's just go ahead and uh, and and take a drink of our uh, of our relative drinks, which I'm drinking an old fashioned. I think I made a reference to that earlier in the show. What are, what you got there, buddy? Uh, it's the old the old hot mati that we've been going to lately. It's, oh man, it's cold up here. I didn't want to stop and get beer. Um, it's really born out of laziness. Is is why this is happening. I already had the supplies on hand. Um, that's where we're at right now. All right, let's let's do let's let's pour some out for the, for the old Chip Kelly. All right, so Chip Kelly gets fired after one year, and honestly. I still don't don't all the arguments that he made about keeping the assistant coaches, same argument you could made for keeping for for keeping Jim Kelly. But what I found interesting was that obviously when Jim Harbaugh and Trent were not getting along, that was leaked high and low. Now, Chip Kelly and Trent Balky apparently weren't getting along all year. And and we hardly heard a peep. And I find that super interesting. I find that incredibly interesting because remember that that Marate was relegated to like a promotion away from football right uh, last year and it was done so over the leaks and then you have really no leaks this year even though there was apparent dysfunction in the 49ers front office still so I mean that to me is a pretty clear indication that Marate is probably the source of, of a lot of the leaks now of course you still have Jed being the source of a lot of leaks because you've got a lot of stuff coming out now about how you know, it was all Trent Bonke's fault, and Chip Kelly didn't want this, that, and the other. And the only person who stands to gain from that is Jed York. Remember the the 49ers Bible for leak evaluation. Consider the source and who stands to gain. And for all the recent leaks, really the person who stands to gain is Jed York. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question that you have to, uh, you know, take all of this stuff in and, and then apply some Jed spin to it. Know that it's got a little bit of that in there. Um, I, I thought, you know, the interesting thing is it related to Chip, too, was that you you heard about um, him basically saying like, yeah, I, I kind of know that this stuff's going on, that, that Trent's, uh, you know, up there trying to undermine me, but I don't want to play that game. You know, I did that in Philly and and look where it got me. And, uh, and, and I think it was just kind of an example. And again, you don't know how much truth is with this stuff, but everything that we've seen from Chip in San Francisco really does kind of make me think, uh, that that the idea that he was just going to be this stubborn person that was completely stuck in his ways and incapable of changing um, really doesn't seem like that's the case at all. I mean, you, you heard the players like the direct interviews from the players um, talking about how much they liked him as a coach and uh, that they were kind of, you know, sad that he was it was going to be leaving and, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. And the way that he handled the team this year, um, I, I thought was just all really impressive and I think does kind of speak to. Um, you know, him looking to continue to grow. And and that was more, you know, when you saw the stories of Chip before Philadelphia, every, like that was what the, the his kind of MO was, right? Is is I'm not going to do things this way because that's the way that they've always been done. I'm, I'm looking to consistently find the best, most efficient way to do these things. Um, and so I thought that was, uh, you know, something that was interesting. And, and I hope that, you know, he's obviously not going to get another head coaching job right away unless he decides to that he does want to go back to college. But um, I, I would love to see him, you know, go to maybe he goes to New England. Can you imagine that? Like, so McDaniels gets hired. He goes to New well, England. That's what and they did. Coordinator. And they did that with some. They may have done that with with McDaniels or someone where he was hired. He was fired as a head coach. They brought him on as an advisor for the playoffs. 
And then when the offensive coordinator then took, you know, a different job or left or whatever, then that person filled in. I forget exactly who it was. Yeah. Um, that one but, I but they could is, do something. That one I think is a little bit different because, you know, I, I don't. Somebody had mentioned that, oh, they should bring him in as like a consultant for the playoffs like type of thing right away. I think that works with McDaniels, right? Because he had previous experience in the system and he could just kind of come in and, and pick up where he left off. Essentially. Like, yeah. I don't think chip could do that. Like I, I, I like the idea of him going there. If McDaniels accepts, you know, a job this off season. And then in the aftermath of that goes and, and is their offensive coordinator next year. I think that could be really interesting. Um, but yeah, I would just like to see him go, go somewhere, be an offensive coordinator for a little bit. Um, you know, you get a, you get a chance to kind of rehabilitate his image even more and then uh, go get another job later. So let's take a step back for a minute because we were talking about Chip Kelly and how he seemed to have changed quite a bit, at least as 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 a head coach and as a leader of people, which I do think is the case. But there were not flattering reports coming out of 4949 Centennial, Christian Ponder and Joe Staley, both veterans that were on record as saying that there was a bit of a culture issue in the locker room. And and Ponder specifically put a fine point on it when he said that basically there could have been more accountability and the that there are players that could have known the playbook better, that there were young players that didn't really know the playbook. Um, you know, I think Joe Staley made comments that were similar. Uh, I think Quentin Dial also said he needed to step up. Joe Staley said he needed to be a bigger leader because he's more of a lead by example type person and not very vocal. Um you know, so I think that there there was some element of accountability that was missing in in the locker room that they were then able to identify, and, and I do think that that does come at the feet of Chip Kelly, and and maybe he swung the pendulum too far and, and tried to be like not so much of a like you have to do it my way kind of coach, um, and, and there was a bit of a leadership vacuum there, and I think there was going to be a leadership vacuum with this young ass team either way, yeah, I but mean, that- but. That last, oh, sorry, go ahead and go ahead and finish. No, 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 that, that's pretty much the end of it. I'm going to go ahead and end with a preposition or a conjunction, or whatever the fuck that is. I mean, so the, 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 the thing with that is like kind of Dan was mentioning there, right? Is it's, it's hard to, to, to put this on one person, right? I think that obviously Chip certainly shares some of the blame. Like if that's the case, if, if there wasn't the account level of accountability that needed to be there in the locker room, part of that falls on him. Um, but I do think that there is absolutely an element of you just don't have a veteran roster, right? Like this team is so young. I, I, I forget the exact numbers going into it, but I'm pretty sure based on last year's numbers, like the the snap weighted um, it roster age there that Football Outsiders does, like they were like the second youngest team um, in, in football after last year. So and considering they didn't add anybody other than uh, their their draft picks this year, I doubt that went up much. So. Yeah, I think you have this this really young team, and I, I think there is an element with good teams, with veteran teams, where a lot of that is handled by the players. I mean, you hear stories of, uh, you know, players saying like, "Look, we could have run this thing ourselves. Like, um, we we could go in there. We're the ones that if somebody's not, you know, uh, taking a drill seriously enough or is is doing something incorrectly, like the coaches don't say anything. We bring that up and we hold ourselves accountable yeah. because I think for from a player perspective, like. Yes, obviously, you're going to answer the coach and, and hopefully you have a, enough respect there to kind of, um, you know, do what you need to be doing. But I, I think there's a, another level of that peer accountability that uh, tends to go a little bit further. And so I don't know that this is all like, oh, OK, this is another failure of, of Chip Kelly as a coach. And I'm sure that comes out a lot as a, a Chip Kelly apologist in me. But um, I, I think there's more to it than that. And I think, you know, the, the fact that this roster is so young played a big part of that. 
Well, I think, and this is my, I tweeted this out earlier, and I don't know that this is necessarily a, a hot take, and I say that H-A-W-T, right? Hot take. Uh, but th- this coach, or this this quote from Christian Ponder at the end of his press conference, I think pretty much sums it up. The question was, what kind of qualities did you see from Chip Kelly as a head coach? And And this is what Christian Ponder said. He said he really cared about the players. I think he had great relationships with the guys. He was always a guy that was a positive guy. He was more of an encourager than he was a guy that can jump on somebody and be negative. He still did that sometimes at practice, but I really enjoyed being around him. He was unlike any coach I've ever had before. He was really good at asking the question, why? Why are we doing certain things? Just because we've done it for so many years, is this really necessary? So I really appreciate him a lot. I learned a lot from him. And and I still, and I will continue to maintain that the, the two best coaches that, that this York regime has hired are Jim Harbaugh and Chip Kelly. And, and I think that that's, that's an easy statement to make. I think Chip Kelly yeah. is a better coach than, you know, than, than Mike Nolan, than Singletary, than Tom Sula, than Erickson. And, and that pretty much rounds everyone out unless I'm forgetting someone. Um, and so I think that this is, this is a guy who could have done more and could have done well if he just wasn't a part of this bullshit org, if he just was, if he was given, you know, the requisite two or three years um, in this kind of new mold of Chip Kelly with someone like a Colin Kaepernick, because again, this is Colin Kaepernick who has, I think his quarterback rating this year was over just, just over 90, which was his highest rating since 2012. He was getting good production out of Colin Kaepernick. That doesn't mean Colin Kaepernick is necessarily a good quarterback. It doesn't mean that he is the franchise guy again. But he was doing what he needed to do in order to be at least competent. Yeah, I think there there are too many people that are kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, like a slave to win loss record, right? Like, oh, and and you hear and like in some regards, it's coach speak, right? They they kind of have to come out and say those sort of things, like, yeah, you are what your record says you are, right? It's a bottom line business, and all of those sort of um, kind of cliches that you hear every time that a coach gets fired, essentially, like we know that that's not the best way to evaluate team performance. Like, yes, it does matter and wins ultimately do matter. And and that's what gets you into the playoffs and all of that. It's not that their wins and losses are meaningless. It's just, they're not necessarily the best way to evaluate how well a team actually played because there are a lot of things that goes into that. I mean, the, the, we, we talked about with the, the Tom Sula 49ers, right. And like the reason they got five wins is because they were lucky in close games and they went four and two in games decided by one score or less. This year, I almost brought that up with Dan. Dan was mentioning that during the interview, and he was like, "Look, the difference between you know the Matt Stafford Lions that are nine wins and the D- Matt Stafford Lions that are you know four wins is you know a couple of plays." It, and I was like, "Yes, yeah." <laughs> um, and, and I mean, this year it's again with those close games, those games decided by one score or less. They were one in five, I believe. Um, so you know, a couple of little things go differently in some of those games, and it's not a two-win team, right? It's it's about kind of where we thought they would be, which is is hovering around five wins. I think that is kind of the the caliber of team. We, we talk about Pythagorean expectation all the time. Um, this team actually had a, a slightly, I mean, it's it's very, very minimally, but slightly higher Pythagorean expectation than last year's team did. And um, there were things that you could definitely point to where they were improved, even if that didn't show up in the win-loss column. So I think, yeah, Chip was, in a, and I kind of tweeted a lot of this out after the fact, and I think it was, 
a, a poor decision for Chip. You know, it was uh, he, you shouldn't use what happened this year as a reflection in any way as, as to the quality of coach that he is. I mean, um, he wasn't fired, I think, because of, of the job that he did. I think he was fired because of the situation. And, and I do think ultimately for the long term outlook of this team, that it was probably the best decision to make, because if all of a sudden you you try to to put a GM in there that doesn't yeah. necessarily want him and then you're doing this all again next year. Right. If it doesn't go well, which it they're, they're probably not going to be good next year. Right. So, um, yeah, in, in reality, this is what should have happened last year after the Tom Sula year. That's when everything should have been blown up. And then if you're bringing in Chip Kelly you're bringing him in with a new GM and, and, you know, kind of looking at the same type of situation that we have now this year. Um, and so I think that's what should have happened. Obviously it didn't, we are where we are. Uh, and, and again, that's not a reflection on the job that Chip did. You know, we, we talked a bit about experience with, with Dan on the interview and we talked a bit about how having varied experience matters and how it helps because it helps you to see problems either before they happen or identify problems when you're in the middle of them and go, Oh shit. I've seen this before, right? I, or, or you can see the the trajectory of, of an organization and say, you know, fuck, we've done this before. I don't want to do that. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and, and rebuild these structures or, or put in place these structures so these things don't happen. There is value in experience. I think both you and I can agree with that. And, and Dan agreed with that as well. I think this is ultimately the, the problem with Jed is he doesn't have the experience to know how to deal with with some of the things that you're going to have to deal with when you're an NFL owner. Um, because I, I do think that there is, that there is a bit of luck in finding a GM or in finding a uh, head coach or in finding a quarterback for that matter. Right. I, I don't think Bill Belichick had this big master plan to be like, ha I think Tom Brady is going to be the best quarterback in the history of the NFL, but I'm going to wait till the sixth round to draft him. <laughs> right. Like that, that, that's not what he yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> He, he completely and absolutely lucked into Tom Brady being Tom Brady, yeah. right? But he was able to maximize it after the fact. I'm sure, but, but I do think there is an element of luck, just like Dan Hatman said. But, but I think it takes experience to be able to identify what you have and say, shit, you know what? This is actually pretty good, and I got to make this work. I got to figure this out because this type of thing doesn't happen often. And, and I think Eddie DeBartolo, and we've talked about this before, right? Eddie DeBartolo had Carmen policy and he was the guy who had seen this before. And he was like, no, Bill's great. You can't fire Bill. Like it doesn't matter if Bill thinks he's fired. You can't fire Bill. (laughs) Right. Jed doesn't have that person. Yeah. Jed doesn't have the person to sit between Trent and Jim and say, look, you guys can work together. You guys can figure this out because for all of the shit that he was talking about, how they need to have similar you know, philosophies about football. Trent Balky and Jim Harbaugh had similar freaking philosophies about football. Yeah, absolutely. They were way, they were way more aligned than Chip Kelly and, and, uh, and Jed or, or, and Trent Balky, right? So, so you had to have an adult in the room to say, no, Jed, you got to figure out how to make this work because this is a pairing that if you can keep it together, you know, or, or if you can keep this coach and know you got to get a new GM can get you more than if you fire him. And, and there was no one there to say that. And I don't know that there's going to be anyone there to say that now. And if he continues this kind of flat org with him at the top in charge of his little fiefdom, I don't know that necessarily it's going to get any better. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I thought 
what he said, what Dan said about that kind of structure, and again, how much it resonated with how things have gone with the 49ers lately, um, and, and that that idea that, okay, when this is, uh, you have a flat structure like that, and everybody's kind of reporting up to the owner, like that's just kind of, if things go poorly, which again, with this organization, even if they make the best hires that they They're possibly gonna. can, like, it's going to be a couple of years, you know, unless the only way that that doesn't happen is if they just completely luck into a star quarterback. Like that's the, obviously the quickest way you can turn things around. Um, but barring that uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit, it's going to be a couple of years before this team is, you know, ready to be a perennial playoff contender. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, setting it up that way is, is potentially a recipe for disaster again. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the one thing that I, uh, that gives me a little bit of hope and again, it's considering what we know about Jed, uh, it's very, very easy to talk yourself out of this. And I don't know that I'm a hundred percent sold on it, but this was, I'll try and talk you out of it. (laughs) I mean, this was something that Dan (laughs) mentioned and something that I kind of had had been, uh, you know, thinking about beforehand. And and it's this idea that like, okay, he, he talked about several of these candidates that we have for GM right now. Like they've declined interviews, right? They've declined interviews in previous years. And so all of a sudden they're they're accepting these interview requests. Um, what's different about this situation compared to some of the other offers that they've, you know, had in the in the past there? Um, and so obviously there has to be something appealing about it. And, and Lewis Riddick said this on ESPN at multiple points about how he does think it's a good situation. And I think the argument that you can make there is that they're at the bottom, right? That they, they are they've kind of all of normally when you're taking over a bad team, right? Like what Reggie McKenzie had to do in Oakland was he had to take like what two, maybe three years where he just had to undo every bad thing that had been done by previous regimes, right? You got to get rid of all Anything these happened bad, in Seattle. Yeah. You had to get rid of all these bad contracts. You got to, um, you know, wait until you can get into uh you know, a salary cap, you know, good salary cap situation, um, you got to, you know, a lot of times those teams have traded away future first round picks and things like that. So you have all of these other hurdles that um, the previous regime left you that you have to overcome first. The 49ers don't have any of that, right? They have a, an excellent cap situation. They have a ton of draft picks coming up in the next well, few Except drafts. for Vance McDonald. I mean, you went on your Vance McDonald. Right? Yeah, I mean, oh, wow. you can get rid of him. I'm willing to. They, they, they're going to roll over <laughs> all this cap space. They can they can take that hit. We'll take one. All right. Um, and so, you know, you, you have there's no there's very little talent on this roster, especially at what I think are the, the kind of marquee positions. Right. I think if you're listing them, obviously, quarterback number one. And then in some order, you have pass rusher, wide receiver, cornerback. Those are your your big ticket positions um, that you really need to, to have guys out to succeed in the NFL right now. And they have no talent at any of those positions. It's it's completely bare there. Um, and, and so, you know, maybe you're looking at cornerback. Okay. There's, there's a couple of guys there that I think we like, but nobody that's necessarily like a star, you know, you know, you don't have a, a Darrell Revis, Richard Sherman type of guy in their prime. Um, and, and so there are some bad things there, but you, again, you, you're in a situation where you can come in and you're at the ground floor. You can build this thing up however you want it. Um, and so I think for some general managers, that's gotta be, uh, you know, appealing. Not everybody can walk in, like you said, walk in to, to Denver, you know, where you have kind of this great structure around you. You have a great roster for the most part. Um, you're expected to win immediately. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't happen too often. So in the realm of bad situations, like this is, is not that it could, it could definitely be worse for an incoming general manager. 
Well, and and I think this was kind of a small and and not necessarily ignored, but maybe kind of washed over statement that that Trent made during the press conference. But it jumped out to me, which was that he he mentioned there was a misalignment about the state of the roster, and he said that basically you know one of the reasons that he's making these changes is because you know the the, the head coach didn't agree with a general manager or, or there was disagreement. I don't, he didn't say exactly who about how good this roster was. I, I have, again, not, no basis in fact, no basis in anything but my own gut. My sneaking suspicion is that Jed York thought this roster was better than it was because Trenton Balky was telling him it was better than it was. Yeah. And, and that Trent Balky saying, no, these players are good. No, these players are good. And you just need a coach to make them better. You just need a coach to make them better. And, and that's why he got rid of Jim Harbaugh. Because he thought, you know what, with a roster like this, if I could just get a coach to, to give him that little extra oomph, then we can win a Super Bowl. And, and you know who's going to give me that oomph? That oomph is Jim Tomsula. Because he's a rah-rah guy. And his mustache can make miracles. Oh my God. And, and, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh shit, you know what, that, that didn't actually work out. And, and then Trent Bullock's like, no, 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 you got to get me an X's and O's guy. He's going to actually give me you know, what I need. And and then, you know, Chip Kelly comes in and he's like, and Chip Kelly probably looked at J.D. York and he was like, nah, dude, this roster sucks. He was throwing this shade all year. This roster is dog shit. Throwing shade We had a whole segment. We had a segment year. all year. All year. This week in Chip Kelly throwing shade. And he, he even did it right even when he knew he was going to get fired. How <laughs> shitty is that to, to hear on the radio or on ESPN that you've lost your job and then... You know, he calls Jed York or Jed York calls him, depending on who you believe, whatever. He's like, no, 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 I haven't decided yet. But, but come on. Yes, you yeah. have. Get the it's, fuck out of here. Right? That's some fucking bullshit. Um, and, and so it's just like, okay. And so even then, even then, in his last moments, Chip Kelly's like, look, I don't, I don't control the roster, right? Like, I don't make these decisions. It's like, you know what, they Chip did Kelly? They pretty good for where we got them. Like, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's just like damn you do you Um, buddy you do you because i love you um yeah it's just it's it's just one of those things where where i think and this is you know to my original point i think that jed finally understood that this roster was not good And, and i think him understanding that this roster is not good buys the incoming coach and general manager time it gives them the requisite three to four years that they will probably need to get back to a place where we're like, shit, we, we can actually win 10 games. We can actually do this if you have the, the right combination of pieces that you've done over time and maybe you get a pass rusher and, and a quarterback. So I think that to me was that little thing that I heard that is going to give me that little bit of hope. That's like, I think Jed finally gets it. He may not know how to fix it, but at least he knows that this roster is dog shit right now. The other thing that gives me a little bit of hope, and this has nothing to do with Jed. This is this is all. Uh, th- I mean, it's, it's completely unsubstantiated, right? Like, but the idea that Albert Breer tweeted um, about Riddick and McDaniel's, Josh McDaniel's, getting paired. Oh yes, let's talk about that for a second. Man, sorry, I was trying to get a cherry out of my old fashioned. <laughs> um, these Luxardo cherries. I sh- these looks. I'm, I shit you not. Hold on. Can we just do a small PSA for Luxardo cherries? Do it. If you don't know what Luxardo cherries are, they're the original maraschino cherries. They're like the super deep purple syrupy ones that you get 
at the classy cocktail bars that you never want to take your date to because the drinks are like 15 bucks. <laughs> so these things, you can go to like, I guess uh, in the Bay Area, it's BevMo. Uh, out here in Texas, it's Specs. It's like $17 for a can of these things. That's not nothing. That's like a dollar a cherry. Without a, without a strong stuff. recommendation, that is far more than I would ever spend on cherries. But dude, these are legit. If you want to make a really good drink, uh, whether that be a you know an old fashioned or I don't know some other cherry drink that you're gonna make, you gotta get these Luxardo cherries. I'm telling you, the syrup is great for drinks. Uh, I'm trying to dig one out of my old fashioned right now, just so I can. I mean, you know, I, 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 don't I do love an good. old fashioned. Um, probably my favorite drink, my favorite cocktail. It's really good. But yeah, okay. So let's talk about the McDaniel's um, Riddick pairing because this is something that that both that I think tingles both of us in our jingles. I mean, uh, if I will get festive, I, I don't about know this. if it's uh, it. It's up there probably right now with the excitement that we had about Chip Kelly before we thought that Chip Kelly was even a realistic option. I mean, we 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 pretty much dismissed chip kelly immediately last year because we we're nerded like, the fuck out about chip kelly yeah. let's be real i mean and we were like oh there's no chance that this is going to happen because this would actually be a semi-smart thing to do uh and and obviously we were we we're big fans of chip and and kind of the scheme that he had and that really uh you know fit with kind of the way that i think we view football in a lot of ways so uh, that that was great but the the riddick mcdaniels pairing I think is is the one right now that's really got my attention that that I, I think would be the best possible outcome for this right now. Um, and it's and it seems like they have a, a good relationship. So, again, Albert Breer uh, tweeted out that essentially, quote, word in league circles that R- Riddick McDaniels could be paired. And then he later tweeted that uh, he thinks McDaniels could view the 49ers job as one to seriously consider taking because of this whole reset that's happening there. Right. And, and, and kind of um cleaning house like they did so uh and again they it seems like they have a good relationship and uh you know mcdaniels i I had a few people coming to me this week like talking about like why is mcdaniels you know everybody kind of fixates on what happened in denver and oh the only time he's been successful is is with tom brady and while on one hand i don't think you know you, you can't completely dismiss that but when you view it from the lens of, look, it, we really don't know as much about these coaches as we'd like to think we do. You know, there there are a lot of situations where you you could make the same sort of arguments that you're making against McDaniel's right now against coaches that went on to be very successful. You know, Bill Belichick is a prime example. Pete Carroll is a prime example. Um, you know, there are a lot of very good coaches that kind of stumbled first and really struggled and then were able to kind of reset and figure things out and and come back and be very very good head coaches and i think well and like like i said dude we've we've gotten pretty good at this like this is our third year in a third row year. this is the, the third annual black monday <laughs> what the fuck are we doing podcast and the, the, i think that your article that you wrote last year during the tom sula search where you kind of built a model for a, a successful nfl head coach if you're looking for one I think is honestly still to this day one of my favorite articles because you, you kind of look back at the history of the coaches and you're like, all right, so if we look at successful coaches, what do they do? Yes, sometimes you have, you know, the hot shot first timer. Sometimes you've got, you know, the retread and they generally do pretty well. And I think this goes back to the experience argument that we've been making all podcasts, right? It, it, it's seeing what you've done wrong, learning from it. Some people can do it. Some people can't. Pete Carroll, I think, is the most famous example yeah. of someone learning from his coaching mistakes and coming back and being a better coach for it. I would argue that Chip Kelly 
should fit in that mold based on what we know so far. And that was, Learn that from was his the mistakes. argument, right? That we made yeah. is like that he could be one of these guys. And that was why yeah. we, we advocated for him so much. And I still, and I still think that that hypothesis in, in my opinion so far, based on what we know has proven to be true. It's just that he was in uh, a really shitty situation. So we didn't get to see the most of it. Um, and, and so I think that I, I full heartedly or wholeheartedly agree that McDaniels probably fits in that criteria in that he's seen enough of the outside world he knows enough about offenses to be able to tailor an offense to the strengths of their personnel, which I think is That's a big a deal. Thing. I think this is why Adam Gase is successful in Miami because he doesn't try and just say, this is my system. This is what's going to happen. This is where it's going to work. He says, all right, I know my general philosophy. I know what I want to do, but I've got Jay Ajayi and, and I've got Ryan Tannehill. What the hell am I going to do? And he makes it work. And I think that a coach that can do that is going to be far better off than a coach who's going to be a little too rigid in their system. And and that's, honestly, it, I would say that Chip Kelly is, in my book, someone who did learn from their mistakes interpersonally. But I do think that Chip is probably a little rigid with his system in, in a way that I wish, he, I wish he probably would have been a bit more flexible with it. I think if I were to make a criticism of Chip, that's probably what it would be. And And while there were, his system is still his system even if the plays and the and the things that and the way that he called them were not the same from year to year they were not the same in san francisco this year as they were in philadelphia last year and the idea um, like really really quick the idea that it can't work in the nfl is is just absurd like if that's your no, take bullshit. get the get the fuck out like i have nothing to say to you if you can't no look it, it and, and it's not that. because i mean i'm looking i'm watching you know i'm watching and football at all levels right i'm watching college uh the drive concept the mesh concept the mesh pivot concept like these are not concepts that are gimmicky concepts i, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of explaining how these are this, this is the same brand of football that most everyone else plays. They just call them different things and they dress them up different ways. Um, and, and I think it's, it's in the window dressing where, where maybe I might have a couple of issues with, with Chip Kelly. But he even got better with his window dressing this year. Yeah. You know, like he, he had to get better because he realized he had to slow down his pace to make it work. And to make it work in San Francisco specifically. And, and he started dressing it up. He started putting two backs in the backfield. We saw brand new wrinkles. We saw things that we hadn't seen before. Um, and so, yeah, so no, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, but, um, but yeah, I, I just think that the ability to kind of mold what you want to do to your personnel is a fantastic trait to have. And I think Adam Gase has it. And I think McDaniels has it too. Yeah. I mean, with McDaniels, the fun thing with him is that, that we've seen him do it. Like not only it, it's, it's not even a seasonal level thing. Like it's one thing, right. To be able to say, okay, these are the changes that we made over the course of the offseason, right? Like, you go you go from a team like they had in 2007, right? With this high-flying kind of spread attack. You have Randy Moss, and you bring in Wes Welker, and it's we're throwing the ball 45 times a game. And, um, you, you know, it's this, this really wide-open type of system. And then in, a, in a, an entire offseason, you're going to decide that, okay, we're going to bring in some more tight ends, right? We're going we're gonna to draft Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, and we're going to switch things up and go to this more 12 personnel two tight end look uh, and really craft things there. Like when you have a whole off season, do it. Okay. It's like, it's still impressive. Like I still like that quality in a coach, but it, it's, it's easier to, to say like, Oh yeah, of course they were able to do that because they, they spent their whole off season crafting the strategy. Right. But he's able to do it on the fly. Like he did it 
this year, if you look at the first four games, right? You have Jimmy Garoppolo coming in because Brady's suspended and they, you are able to make that work. And then all of a sudden he gets hurt and they're able to just continue. Kobe Brissett. Yeah. They're able to con- continue to adapt and, and figure things out and how they're going to work it like on a week to week basis based on what they have going on there. Um, and, and I think that, yes, you, you, you have to have, you know, some sort of caveat in there about, you have Brady and that makes everything easier to work. But I think some of the finest examples you could point to with McDaniels comes when Brady wasn't around, right? It's the, it's the Matt Castle year. He made Matt Castle look like a legitimate NFL quarterback. Like people wanted to have Matt Castle on their team. And we saw how that worked out once he left new England, like he was a, a complete disaster. Like he was fucking terrible. So I think there's something to be said about his ability to, you know, on a week to week basis, adapt to what he's you know be able to do anything like he he's he's done every sort of scheme that you can do at this point in new england like they've they've gone again from the spread to the two tight end stuff to um you know a more power run attack when they they had receivers that were injured so it's uh, this this ability to kind of do just about anything and, and to be able to also pick out what a defense does poorly and attack those weaknesses right like uh, I, I don't really think that you can make an argument that he isn't very strong in those areas. And so if you believe that he's, again, rehabilitated all of the other things, right? It was the, the reason he failed in, in Denver were all of the, again, interpersonal things. And, um, you know, I think it was, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Dan Pompey um, yeah. from Bleacher Report had a, an excellent article early in the season, like in September, um, that really kind of went into mcdaniels reflecting on what went wrong and and kind of that whole process and so if you believe that he's learned from those mistakes which i i kind of based on the information we have i think that he has um he's he's a fantastic football person to to have in that role i think failure is the single biggest teacher that humans have if they're willing to listen to the lessons that failure gives them now, I, I don't think everyone is capable of learning the lessons from failure, right? Yeah. There are some people who are like, shit, I, I, I done fucked up. And I'm going to try and think <laughs> as much as your parents used to say this to you, right? I'm like, go and think about what you did. I'm going to actually <laughs> think about what I did, think about why it was wrong, and, and think about why I never want to do that again. Because I do think that, you know, at, at the level at which we're talking about, at the NFL level, which is the top 1% of whatever job you want, whether it is defensive end, general manager, scout, or head coach, or offensive coordinator, there are 32 to apparently now like 10 <laughs> scouting jobs per team. There's 300 scouting jobs, you know, 1,000 player jobs, and 32 GM, 32 head coach, 32 offensive coordinator jobs. That's, that's a really elite group to be in. Yep. At that point, you don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to mail it in. Uh, you know what? I, I'm not going to try today. You know, that doesn't mean that everyone is capable of learning from their mistakes, but I do think that some people are. And, and so I think at the end of the day, that, that is why, I mean, we didn't intend for this episode, honestly, we just intended to just get drunk and talk this episode. So we didn't intend this episode to be like the ultimate, like, this is who we think we would endorse for head coach or GM. And I still don't know that, you know, McDaniels or Riddick are going to be the ultimate guys, but but for me, that's the pairing that I think makes the most sense. I, I do think, you know, it was actually really interesting when Dan was like, why do you want someone who's charismatic? Because someone who's not charismatic could just as easily communicate a vision. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and he's absolutely right. 100% correct. Um, Bill Belichick doesn't have charisma, but he can still communicate the shit out of a, uh, actually I would argue he does have charisma. It's just a very different charisma than what we're used it's, to. It's kind of like the idea, right? I, the thing that I thought of that I didn't really get an op- opportunity to kind of interject and mention was it's, it's like when you fire a head coach, right? And he wasn't, you, you want the opposite of what you had. So you, the pendulum swings. Yeah. So you had an offensive guy and that didn't work out. So now I want to go and get a defensive minded head coach or vice this versa. This is Mike right? Nolan. Yeah. So now it's, it's the same thing for us. Like it, it's, we had this guy that was, uh, you know, really just didn't want to talk to the media ever. Like, just completely shut everybody else out didn't talk to his head coach and again and i mentioned this on the interview with dan but like i I do think that to a certain degree where there's smoke there's fire trim bulky not talking to the coaches right and and not saying like hey what do you need if that's true holy if that's true i know because i don't think that's 100 true because here's why because he is he, he is signing players that used to be with chip kelly in philadelphia Right. Like Chris Jones, for instance, was a player that who played eh, below average, much like everyone else <laughs> for the 49ers he fit right in. Yeah, he fit right in. But he did have a history with Chip Kelly. So one of two things is happening. Either a bulky is actually going to Kelly and going like, hey, like I, I, I need someone who's going to fit what you want to do. Like, let me know. Or he's saying. Well, I've got this list of people that used to play for Chip Kelly. <laughs> right. He 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 can't say that I didn't help him out by getting one of his old guys. This guy was right? here. Uh, he's he was yeah, in Philadelphia. And, yeah, fucking sign him. Yeah, Who cares? Yeah, absolutely. Sign that guy. Right. Like it. And look, at this point, I seriously don't know which to believe. It's really hard. Um, but both. You know, in one world, Jed's an asshole who's leaking shit just to leak shit. In the other world, Trent Baalke is pretty like pretty terrible. And and this is why I think that that interpersonal skill is 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 a trait and and something that not everyone possesses but the people who do are they're better for it they're better for making connections they're better for they're better at getting jobs they're better at landing on their feet they have larger social networks it's more difficult i think to create a positive reputation than it is to create a negative one um it's you do one bad thing you piss one person off you act like an arrogant prick in front of one person and you're an arrogant prick that that's just a label that's assigned to you. You can be a good human for ten years, and you go on one rant, and you're fucked. Yep, that's it. Um, and then to try and rebuild that is a whole different story. And so I think that when you look at someone with you know just a positive track record, and I'm not talking about people who are like, oh man, I you know interviewed like on you know KVU News or whatever. Like I, I didn't think he would ever kill someone. I'm not talking about like that, <laughs> right? Like I'm talking about like. <laughs> actual <laughs> professional references where you've worked with them in an office for an extended period of time and they say, yeah, I'd work with that person again. Yes, I like what they do. Yes, I think they do good work. Um, I, I feel like that's the type of thing that's been, the, I think that's the kind of coattail that Lewis Riddick is writing yeah. and some of the other people are writing too. Um, but you look at someone like Elliot Wolf, right? Dude's 34. Yeah. 34. Um. Yeah, you know, like, there's... and that doesn't mean that he can't be a visionary, but, but I do think that there's something to be said about experience and failure and 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 all the things we've talked about previously, right? You look at some of the other uh, uh, GM candidates, right? Nick Casario, um, he's someone who, again, is bred and born Patriots. Um, you, I love the the Gutenkost. Gut- I know. I saw. I was like, ah, shit. There's. I have no chance. No chance uh, at this one. Uh, Gutekunst. I think is how Dan said it. Gutekunst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Gutekunst. Yep, yeah. Yep. 
Um, you know, Jimmy Ray the third, not the same Jimmy Ray that was the offensive coordinator for the 49ers. Man, Fooch had to go ahead and, and put up like just Jimmy Ray in there. And I like was like, wait, what? What is happening? No, yeah. no. How is he a candidate? And then I like, yeah. you know, came back down to earth and realized what exactly was happening. Um, but for a moment there, it was sheer terror and panic. Yeah, but it's funny because Dan actually has all he has a great article um, that I tweeted out earlier today. And he talks about how all of these guys, Casario, Peyton and Wolf are all in this kind of GM and waiting class. He's put them in this cohort where they are basically they've been talked about as GMs for the past few years, but they've been selective in interviewing and they want to pick their shot. And this is the shot that they're picking, which, which you know, I, except for yeah. one, the guy from the Chiefs. Um, who's the guy from the Chiefs that that said, "Nah, fuck y'all," Chris Ballard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's the only one who was like, "Nah, dude, I'm cool." But everyone else was like, "Yeah, let's do this." Um, and I think to your point earlier, that that's interesting. I I still think, in my mind, Lewis Riddick is the guy. I I I still think so. And again, limited research. I don't know that any more research is going to help. Um, yeah, I mean, but, like we talked yeah. about right. Like, there's only there's only so much that we can know from the outside, and that much is very little. Like in in the grand scheme of things, so um, you know, it, it everything goes with that caveat that look, we don't know a lot about these candidates um, from where we're sitting, and and it's really hard to judge who's going to be successful. But um, I I do like you know, and this is really the thing with with both um, McDaniel's and Lewis Riddick for me is it's the the, the variety of experiences, right? For McDaniels, it's the variety of experiences in different offenses and different schemes and being able to adapt to what uh, personnel that he has and the situations and the, the opponent that he's playing. And with Riddick, it's, you know, I've been with, you know, like uh, Dan mentioned, what, four organizations when I was playing, two as, a, as an executive. He was um, with like five when he was playing. He had seven teams in seven years. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, cer- he bounced around. Certainly not a, a not a great player necessarily. Um, which and well, personally for me, and and I've said this on the podcast before, I do think there's something to be said about players who succeed at the NFL level but aren't exactly uh, like super physically gifted. Yes. Right. Yes. Like because they they have to figure out a way to make it work at an intellectual level. That's what sets them apart. Um, this is why I think some of the best head coaches are usually failed college or pro athletes, right? Like this is like your, your D two quarterback. Who's like, the only reason I'm a D two quarterback is because I actually know how to process information because I'm not actually good at throwing the football. Yeah. People put, Um, when it comes to like this sort of thing, like they put the great athletes, like, like, look, love Jerry Rice. Like dude was never want my hero growing up. Got a signed Jerry Rice jersey for Christmas this year from, from the future mother-in-law, which is the best, like one of the best gifts I've ever received. Fantastic. Love the guy. Want him nowhere near a, a decision-making position with this organization. Like, And there's so many fans that like, oh, why aren't we bringing in him? Why aren't we bringing in Steve Young? Why aren't we doing this? And it's like, okay, even if some, even if there's an exception like Steve Young, who I think is a, a legitimately like very bright person, like, um, really, you know, I, I like a lot of his ideas and, and the way that he looks at the game. Like, what makes you think that just because he was a good player that he's going to be equally successful in one of these other roles? So I, I, I totally and likewise, agree. The flip side is someone like Ken Dorsey, who was an absolute train wreck as a player at the pro level, but is, for all intents and purposes, a great coach. 
a great quarterbacks coach. Same thing with Chris Winky, right? Another great court now quarterbacks coach that the, I would argue the only reason that they made it to the NFL was not because of their physical talent, but because of the way they handled, understood, and processed information. And that's what you need. And then we're able to communicate that out to others. And, and that's, I think, one of the, the, the preeminent skills that you need as a coach. And so I think that that's, you know, if we were to, and I think we're both landing very clearly, if you haven't, you haven't put it together by this, the end of this podcast, <laughs> that, that we both are on the, the McDaniels and, uh, and Riddick train. But I'll, I'll throw, I'll, I'll ask this question to you as, as kind of the final parting question, which is, if not Riddick, if not McDaniels, then who else? Right, we've got confirmed. We've got requests for interviews with Casario. Gu- uh, God damn it, it's really hard to read. Gutekunst, Jimmy Ray the <laughs> third, but not that Jimmy Ray. George Payton. Uh, we've expressed interest in Trent Kirchner from the Seahawks, Scott Fitterer from the Seahawks, and Scott Pioli from the Falcons. Coaches where we've requested and/or planned an interview: Anthony Lynn with the Bills which I think would be the most hilarious thing ever because that would basically be Jim Harbaugh's running offense. Um, Kyle Shanahan, Vance Joseph, and Sean McVay. Tom Cable, no interview set. <laughs> and Doug Marone, no interview set. So give me your alternative to Riddick and McDaniels and give me your, oh, hell to the nah-nah to uh, yeah. either GM or head coach. I mean, I was going to start with 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 the latter there. Um if Tom Hold Cable on, can we can we Oh man, I was going to say it I'm together, sorry. If Tom I'm... Cable gets fucking hired, this podcast is over. Like there's not even going to be a follow-up <laughs> episode like to say like, "Hey, we fucking hate Tom Cable and you're just never going to hear from me again." Um it's like I would oh my god, fuck that. Like Tom Cable's not even a good fucking <laughs> offensive line coach. Um, <laughs> fuck Tom Cable. Uh, maybe he might be a great guy in person. There I don't are, fucking know, but there are two. Um, there are two people in the pantheon of of David Newman hate, and that is Tom Cable and Vance McDonald. That's it. Those are the two like Dave Newman hate Hall of Famers. There's some things that you can see a mile away, right? And it's like, like, look, I've gotten a lot of things wrong, and and that's kind of the nature of this thing when you try to like make predictions and make evaluations, like. But the way the NFL is, like, most of the time you're going to be wrong. Um, one of the few things that I've been right on and, and going through and, like, looking at some of the research that I'd uh, done on head coach and stuff, because, again, we're fucking pros at this at this point. Like, everything pointed to Jim Tomsula being fucking terrible. Everything. Every single sign was like, no, don't do this. Uh, and Tom Cable's kind of the same way. Like, he, it's just like, no, completely avoid this situation. So so that's the disaster one there. Um I don't know that. Well, Tom Cable's another position coach, right? Yeah, position coach. I mean, and he's got the the bullshit title of the assistant retread. head coach um, is, is well going on right now. But yeah, I, I mean, for him, it's it's there are myriad reasons why he would be a, a poor option. So not a fan of that. Um, I, I think my next choice from a head coaching perspective would probably be Kyle Shanahan. Um, the strange yep, thing, too. honestly, is is that there actually seem to be like multiple quality options like uh, uh kyle shanahan i would i would be totally comfortable with um him coming in there even somebody like vance Mc, uh vance joseph like i've you know heard pretty good things about like i i wouldn't be terribly upset with him um from a gm perspective i think uh a lot of the guys that we mentioned you know that that have been kind of selective in in terms of where they're interviewing that are now all of a sudden interviewing for this position 
those ones kind of intrigue me. The the Nick uh, Casario from the Patriots, Elliot Wolf, and the George Payton. Um, I think those guys all um, seem like like quality candidates. So I would be um, totally on board if if any of those guys got hired. Um, yeah, I guess if I had, I mean, if I had to pick one, probably Nick Casario. But honestly, those three are kind of in the same tier. Like they're all kind of on equal footing for me based on yeah. what I know about them right now. I would say for me, it's Casario uh, and Riddick. And then Wolf kind of brings that up the rear mostly because of his youth. I, I do. I mean, I hate to be an ageist, right? And it's tough. that's yeah. basically what I am right now, right? But But I do think that there is something to be said about experience. One thing I think that is interesting is we've we've grandstanded quite a bit about experience and how having it multiple times is helpful and how as a head coach in, in the study that you did, coaches that were offered a second opportunity to be head coach, um, you know, in, in multiple cases, were able to do a better job, the most notable of which, of course, is Bill Belichick. And we've talked about Pete Carroll. But does the general manager have a similar type of, of trajectory, right? Dan talked about it in the interview where he said that a lot of times you don't get a second chance as a GM. You don't. And, and so you line up your shot because you know that it, once you get one, maybe two, that's it. You're done. And, and the, the GMs that have gotten multiple shots, the Ernie courses of the world, they did it because they were successful at their previous gig. Yeah. Right. Not because they failed at their first gig and then succeeded at their second one. So I, I think it would be really interesting to take a look at someone who, was thought to be really good, failed, and is now looking at their second shot. And and that's someone, you know, if you look at the list of former GMs, that's Scott Pioli, um, you know, and maybe Chris Polian, uh, Martin Mayhew for the New York Giants, and Brian Zanders. I think of those, Scott Pioli, to me, is, is yes. the name that jumps out. Yep. Um, because he did do, he did have a pretty good run, right? It, it just all kind of fell apart there near the end. And so, you know, he he has had the opportunity to learn at a, at a different franchise now. And so I think that's an interesting area to examine, I think, for general managers. Because if I think that logic holds true for head coaches, then why wouldn't it also then hold true for general managers? Um, so, yeah, so that's, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think I mostly agree with you. I think for me, second head coach indeed would be Kyle Shanahan. Um, and, and I think my second GM, if we're not going to pull from the Wolves Casarios of the world... Uh, would probably be Polian or Scott Pioli. Sorry. Yeah. I th- Not Bill I Polian. think that makes sense. Again, he comes from, you know, he comes from that Patriots family uh, of, of guys that all kind of left at around the same time. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think there's a, certainly an argument to be made there that, again, he can uh, kind of step back, take a little bit of a lower position, reevaluate things, you know, learn from the mistakes that he made uh, in, in Kansas City and then go from there. So, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. All right. Well, uh, I think that about does it um, for this extended, long and um, relatively inebriated, at least at the end of it, uh, <laughs> podcast. Uh, so what's going to be the uh, the good old call to action? What uh, what's uh, what are we doing I mean, here? Part of uh, me wants to do hashtag fuck Tom Cable. Um, I- <laughs> but, uh, oh, man, you uh, you really don't like Tom Cable. Um, dude is again, he's not even good at his own job, like his current job. Like what makes you think that he's going to be a good head coach? Um, and we've got uh, Luxardo cherries. We could do hashtag Luxardo. God, good luck. I don't even want to think about it. Trying to spell that right now. Um, uh, it's really easy. L-U-X-A-R-D-O. Luxardo. Oh, yeah. um, man, I don't know. That's um, 
You know what? I Let's do this. Third Cable. annual. Let's do third annual. Fuck Tom Cable. Let's just, either <laughs> one. You choose. We always give you options, right? We're a podcast of options. <laughs> yeah, throw them uh, both in there. What the hell? Third annual. Fuck Tom Cable. Well, thanks again to Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy uh, because that was a lot of fun to, to get him oh, on up wanna, and start talking about stuff. Do you want to like talk about that super briefly here while outro music's yeah. playing? Yeah, so we've got, uh, when the outro music plays, we know we've got about uh, a minute and a half to two minutes left, but uh, both David and I officially have now signed up for Scouting Academy, which is the the academy that Dan signed up for. It's something we've both had our eye on for a while, but either didn't have the time to do um, or whatever, um, and so... Dan is someone whose work we've we've admired for a bit. Again, David turned me on to him from a podcast, God, like a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, from Josh Norris's Process the Process. Um, and yeah, I mean, the idea is we, we don't want to become scouts or try to get jobs in football, or at least I don't, but David might. No. Um, and... <laughs> But it's we want to make ourselves better, um, just like we you know want to make everyone who listens to this podcast better at, at watching the footballs. So we're gonna do it, uh, and so we decided to sign up. And January sixteenth is uh, the beginning of the course, and so yeah, we're gonna go through a, what is it seventeen week, sixteen week course, sixteen weeks. It's like a real real semester, like if we were going to college yeah. or something. Um, so for sure, yeah, it's gonna be fun. I mean, you'll you'll certainly hear. Um, some of those things that we learned there inevitably passed on to you guys, hopefully, and uh, it'll it'll be well, that's fun. That's the hope. I think scheme month is going to be quite a bit different. I think this month because we'll have something to draw on. I think draft evaluation I, that obviously was the big one. Yeah, I think NFL draft stuff. You know, hopefully we'll have maybe a little bit more there than we've done in the past. It's it's kind of been something that we've uh, generally Shied away from avoided. Yeah, before yep. especially in the pre-draft process. You know, something we got into. Once we know the the limited pool of players that we have uh, that we actually selected there, so probably do a little bit more on right. that front. But uh, yeah, it should be should be a lot of fun. Yeah, should be a shit ton of fun. So, uh, so yeah, that's what's coming up. We're gonna keep going, man. We're gonna do this every other week once the off season hits. Uh, we're still gonna be planning some great content for you. So definitely stay tuned. You can follow me at Better Rivals, uh, David. Where can they follow you? Uh, it's gonna be at David Newman with a sad little underscore at the end. Indeed. Yeah. And as always. Go Niners. Hello, you're listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of the Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play. Brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories. Like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0. Or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening.